0: all right lovely um well good evening everyone uh my name is uh, toby marshall and uh i'm going to be uh your chair uh for the education forum tonight and um uh, i'm a a-level teacher who's worked in london for uh more than 20 years um i'd like to start by apologizing for my lock mop um uh, but hopefully uh i will make up for my poor styling by my um Fantastic new headphone uh, set, which I'm very pleased with. So hopefully the fidelity will be good. Uh I'm going to be uh, assisted today um by uh Harley Richardson, um, who's um uh just gonna share some details on the chat facility now. Uh, because if you if you've enjoyed the discussion, if you enjoyed the discussion today, we would like you to make a a contribution. So uh Harley, if you could put that in the chat facility, uh, that'd be great. Um, So our question this evening um, uh, couldn't be um, more serious. It's, um, is lockdown damaging our children's uh, mental health? Um, And I have to say, for me personally, this is an issue uh, which in my own mind, I'm far from um, settled on, which is why I was so pleased to be asked to chair this one, because I think it will help me um, uh, get a fix on the issue. And and like no no doubt many people um, uh, in the audience, it's it's a it's a pressing issue because uh, our students will be back next week. So we're trying to get our head around what we, we don't quite know what we're going to see. And so hopefully um, uh, the discussion will help us start to be uh, uh, start thinking about that and get a fix on it. I think one thing we we can be sure on um, is that. Uh, lockdown would have uh, resulted in uh, many young people missing out on many significant developmental um, opportunities. There's many things that have been uh, denied to them as a consequence of that. Um, Yet at the same time, I do wonder about uh, recent studies, such as the survey that was recently published by the NHS, uh, which claimed that um, one in six children between the ages of five and 16 was exhibiting, in quotes, probable Mental health disorders. I mean, can it can it really be that bad? Uh, um, and is there a danger that uh, as adults we make the situation worse by uh, talking talking it up? Um, I mean, I for 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 me personally, I just want to get my hands uh, stuck in and to to rebuilding. Now um, we've had a horrible year, and uh, I want to return to normal as quickly as possible. So uh, to help us get some balance. Uh, and perspective on this issue. Um, and uh, I do think it's a, a complicated issue where I don't think any one side has necessarily got a monopoly on the good. It's a dialogue um, where we're trying to work out um, a way forward. We've got an excellent set of speakers, and I'm really pleased to be chairing them uh, today. Um, speaking first, we have um, Sarah Standish. And Sarah is a school counselor um, with many uh, years of experience and um, currently she's working at the sharp end of this issue um, in a school in Northwest London. And of course, uh, it's not like schooling has stopped. We've continued providing students with support and interaction daily as teachers and, and support workers within uh, school. Um, after this, we have uh, Molly Kingsley. Um, Molly, many of you will know Molly um, from a h- high profile campaigning work as a founding member of uh, us for them. Us um, for them, for those of you that have not heard of this group uh, is a campaign group that has ensured um, that the needs of the young um, has been a consistent and unavoidable feature uh, of the national debate over lockdown um, over the last year, and it has felt at times that the needs of the young um, and uh, you know who, who do after all represent literally the future at one level. Um, have been kind of neglected in all of this discussion. So we're very pleased to have Molly join us today. And finally, we have uh, Dr. Ken McLaughlin. Um, And Ken is a senior lecturer in social work at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, And he's written extensively on this and related issues. And um, uh, as preparation for this, I was reading Ken's work on the uh, website Spiked, uh, and I found some of his um, writings on teenage mental health um, especially useful for me Um, in preparing for this discussion today. Um, Ken's latest book, Stigma and Its Discontents, is due to be published uh, later this year. Um, I've asked our speakers to introduce for no more than five minutes um, so that we can have plenty of time for discussion because it is a layered and multifaceted uh, discussion. Um, And uh, so after our speakers have introduced, I might might ask a few questions, but I'll be inclined to go um, straight out to the audience. And I just ask that you put your hands up um, if you would like to speak. I might not be able to take everyone immediately. I'll take people in batches, um, and um, uh, uh, I do hope to get everybody in. So keep your hand up, and I want to make sure that all voices are heard um, on this discussion. Sarah, would you like to kick us off, please?
1: Absolutely. Good evening, everybody. Um, Thank you for the invitation to speak tonight um, and the lovely introduction. Um, I just wanted to state from the start that I'm really going to be speaking from my professional experience, and I'm going to try to bring as much voice um, of my students to what I I have to say. Um, I haven't conducted uh, uh, research on this, but I've just been tracking what the experience has been like um, since the first lockdown. So I just wanted to say that. Um, I'm going to jump in there and be quite bold tonight and say I think using the word damage Is too strong. Um, You know, I think if we say that we've somehow children are damaged, that implies that there's no turning back. And so I really. Um, recoil from that because I'm in here trying to work day in and day out with these students to show them a way forward. So I could, I don't feel that I can sort of support that, but I will say to you um, that we, I have seen some marked mental health changes. So I wanted to speak a bit about that. Um, Toby, you mentioned um, the loss that young people have experienced, and I just echo that. Um, the one that I might add um, you know, that I think has been quite important is the opportunity for them to have extracurricular activities as well as re- residential trip experience. Um, these are times when they're away from home, away from structured classrooms where they're sort of um, experiencing social um, interactions and testing the waters in terms of who they are and how they make decisions. So I wanted to add that one. Um My sense is really that young people's social, emotional, and cognitive development has been stunted in the lockdown. So I'm not saying that they can't bring that back, um, but they've really missed critical opportunities to um, face challenges, to problem solve, to take risks and try new things, to experience the joys of success and the heartbreak of failure. Um, to navigate tricky social scenarios uh, like conflict, breakups, making new friends, um, tolerating routines and learning to develop strong um, skills as a student, uh, discussing their ideas, debating their ideas, defending their ideas in a format that isn't online or in a chat. Um, and then one that I think is really important is that they've lost um, you know, the ability to have physical freedom, you know, to move around, to be active, to be competitive, to um, be silly and goofy. And, um, you know, all those things that we know are really important in terms of development. Um, and I really believe that they can catch up. We saw that when students came back last term, that they caught up, um, that they, you know, things improved for many, many students. Um But um, I think this might be one of the explanations for why we're seeing a marked change in some of their moods. Okay, so what students tell me is that they miss uh, contact. They miss seeing their friends and teachers. They are fatigued and bored with sitting at home at a desk on the computer. um, And that most importantly, they miss getting meaningful feedback from teachers and staff about how they're doing and if they're doing enough. Um, I think they find it difficult to motivate, um, to create opportunities for social engagement, for exercise, for health and wellness. I think they're kind of tired with the online video stuff. It's just not motivating them anymore. And I think that they're, they fear, they tell me that they fear that things will never return to normal. So that's what the students tell me. Um, In terms of what I've seen as a school counselor in a service that supports 2,000 students, I definitely have seen an increase in requests for support um, from students directly, from staff concerned about students, as well as from parents, Um, but very specifically, the cohort that I've seen the biggest change in is the students that have pre-existing mental health disorders. Now, Toby, you referred to this and we'll need to clarify this, that a disorder is something that is diagnosed by a healthcare professional, like at a CAM service or a psychologist. That isn't someone that Googles the symptoms for anxiety and decides that they have generalized anxiety. So the students I'm speaking about is a very small percentage that we work with and they have shown marked deterioration. We haven't necessarily seen marked deterioration across the board. The other thing that we've seen is an increase in eating disordered behaviors. So not eating disorders necessarily, but we've seen that children's eating habits and their ability to sustain their weight or maintain a healthy weight has been very challenging for for them. And finally, the other cohort we um, have seen in my school that we've been worried about is the year sevens. Um, They've seemed to come in quite mature immature i'm um, not really adjusting easily i um, struggling to sort of manage um and cope the ex- with the expectations that high school demands so that's another group that we've worried about a little bit am i running out of time toby uh,
0: yeah about 30 seconds of this okay. okay
1: so i think the last point i'll make i didn't get to say everything is that you know if we can get if we can get the nhs to sort of reopen some of the tier two and tier three mental health services, I think we're gonna tackle that that small group I told you that I think has really struggled to get them access back to the professional treatment that they need. Um, But I think other students who don't fit into those categories, I think they're gonna need all of our support. And my belief is that with some hope and optimism, they will return to a place where they are, you know, coping and dealing with things in a resilient, you know, positive way.
0: Excellent, Sarah. Thank you very much. That was very specific and um, uh, a good example of the kind of discussion um, and points we want to we want to get to. Um, Molly, thank you.
2: Hi, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for having me on, first of all. Um, and Sarah, I mean, I, I like you, I recoil at the word damage, actually. And as you were talking, I just looked it up um, in the dictionary because I thought, you know, have our kids been damaged? And, and damage is defined as physical harm that impairs the value, usefulness or normal function of something. And it strikes me just listening to you, what an awful conversation that we are actually having to have. Have our children been damaged? And I guess my kind of reflections on that from what we've seen um, in almost a year of campaigning now at Us for Them is, is there is a lot of harm to kids. Um, you know, one would hope, and obviously there's there's loads of papers and statistics now, and again, it's pretty awful to, to reduce children to statistics, but I think we probably all know those statistics by now, um, There's a lot of harm, I guess, you know, at what point and for how many children is that harm permanent? Is it something that they can't claw back from? I guess we don't know, like we've not really been here before. I guess what I would say is I think, although there is a tendency to recoil from this word damage and this concept of it, I personally think it's a necessary word for where we are in the debate now, because I think um, too often we have, heard, you know, our children are fine, they can bounce back, they're resilient, don't worry about the kids, they're little, you know, they'll be fine. That is just not what we're seeing through the Us For Them group. There are children who are categorically not fine. There are children who may never be fine again. I think one of the most upsetting stories that I heard um, over the last few weeks was, I don't know if you saw the story about the children who have developed um, debilitating tics and Tourette's syndrome. And um, Dr. Parker, who is the president of the British Paediatric Neurology Association, said there's been an explosion in um, these kind of syndromes, some of them permanent. And and for some children, this is just one example of, of, I guess, what some might call damage. Um, All of that said um you know one would hope that um actually by being honest about what has happened to children we can now shape the debate about what is needed to make good to them because I don't think it's um going to be helpful to that debate to kind of underplay and you know I'm not saying Sarah that's what you were doing I, I do you know I see exactly what you were saying but I think we have to be honest about what has happened so we can say right you know what is the nature of the program now needed to to make good and go way beyond that let's do something miraculous for these children let's do something aspirational for them um, I guess just a few other observations that I have from you know Obviously, what we've seen with us for them is, you know, when you take away school, it is now pretty clear, I think, to all of us that you also take away so much more than school. I mean, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a family and raise a child. And we've just taken away that village. (laughs) We've taken away the village. We've taken away their friends. We've taken away their right to play. We've locked them in their houses. Um, And I think, again, the thought that you could take all of that away and, and not see... An impact it is obviously you know naive I think for me and and you know I come at it from as a parent of a four-year-old and seven-year-old and I think play is a really interesting thing and I think um I personally would love it if play formed the centerpiece really of what we would try and do with a recovery program um because like you know it, it play is something that's so important it was enshrined in the UN convention, and yet we have just totally abandoned that. And, and I would love to try and find a way to at least make sure that can never um, happen again. Um, just a couple of observations before I um, inquire, I think. Um, the You know, I guess one of the things here is that we are in uncharted territory. Thankfully, there are very few examples in history, really, certainly not recent history, of an event that has had such a lasting and significant disruptive influence Mm. to children's lives so I don't know if we if we know are are we in the position it's a question really are we able to say you know is this permanent is this damage I don't know there are a couple of interesting studies from other um you know disaster scenarios there's there's an interesting long-term study of the aftermath of the Pakistani earthquake in 2005 Um, That's quite sobering. And what that suggests is that even after um, the adult population had, um, in essence, recovered through a programme of, you know, government intervention, government financial help, children hadn't. Their recovery lagged. And in some cases, they didn't catch up. Admittedly, that was talking about education, not mental health. But I thought it was an interesting example. Um, And I guess really just to kind of end on positive, I'm conscious I'm probably running out of time. um, I... You know, this has obviously been a terrible period for children, but I do think that some of the issues, many of the issues as to why that has been so terrible. Um, are systemic and you know was this was this inevitable at some point who knows but what we do have now is we do Mm. have a real chance to address those issues and I think as I said at the beginning I think we've got a chance now to really shape the debate I mean I'm already quite worried by some of the proposals coming out of government I don't think they're aspirational enough I don't think you know I'm not saying it can be fixed with money but I think the numbers that have been about banded around for these catch-up programs are, are far too small and i think actually we need to get on to this discussion now and really force something um better.
0: Okay, excellent. Molly, thank you very much for that. That's uh plenty of food for thought in that. Um uh so i'm going to introduce um uh, ask Ken to give our last introduction. Could i just ask that people have a think about uh questions, observations, disagreements. Uh it's an open forum and um if you put your hands up I might just ask a couple of questions at the end, but uh, do do get ready to. Uh, 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 we're going to go out to the audience. Do get ready to ask your questions and make your make your points. i um, Ken. Thank you.
3: Okay, uh, thank you. I'd like to start by reading out three newspaper headlines. First, children's mental health problems are seen as epidemic. The second, children face mental health epidemic. Say teachers, and the third calls for government action over the UK's intolerable child mental health crisis. Now, that's all worrying stuff indeed, but what's important to note is that all of those headlines predate the current pandemic. In fact, they range from 2004 to 2019. And my main point in highlighting them is to show that there is, in and of itself, nothing new in the belief that the mental health of the nation's children is in crisis. It's seemingly been a consistent theme for a couple of decades now. Now, I think this should alert us to the fact that today's claims of a mental health crisis cannot be understood in isolation. For example, we can't simply focus on the effects of COVID and the prolonged lockdown. Having said that, you don't need a PhD in psychology to conclude that the pandemic has adversely affected all of our mental health. Many of us will have been ill ourselves. Uh, We might have lost a friend or a loved one to the disease. Restrictions in work and social life, family gatherings, weddings, funerals, hobbies, all these things that give our lives meaning, pay the bills and help us cope with the everyday stressors, stressors, they've all been severely curtailed. And I think this has affected young people in particular. They've missed out in many aspects of growing up and associated rites of passage, from exams, school proms, general socialising, boyfriends, girlfriends, going to university and experiencing the world as a young adult. So, they, they, you know, they they have missed out on a heck of a lot. It's been a massive change for everyone, but predominantly worse for um, young people, I think. So, yes, most of us, adults and children, will have felt miserable, worried and bored. And I think as Sarah said, many with existing mental health problems will probably have had them exacerbated as support services have been reduced. Others, no doubt, will develop them during lockdown. I think it would be foolish, would be really foolish to deny this. However, I think we also need to be clear that feeling down or feeling miserable from time to time, experiencing anxiety, lacking motivation, as distressing it as it can be, does not necessarily equate to a mental disorder. And evidence, even at the sharp end, is is fairly equivocal. Now, there's many reports, I'm sure many of you um, listening will have, have read a few of them, that claim that we have seen a massive rise in children and young people's mental health problems and indeed adults, but others have found it's not as bad as is often feared. The one study in the Lancet did find a deterioration in mental health in the first month of lockdown, so so last April, but it also noted that a high score in terms of psychological distress, according to their ratings, did not necessarily equate to the need for professional help. Another large study concluded that, albeit with important caveats, that there's no indication that the pandemic has caused self-harm rates to increase in the UK. I know there are studies that argue the opposite, but I'm just saying that the the evidence isn't isn't clear. And neither is there evidence of a significant rise in suicides post-lockdown. So what's going on? I want to propose a couple of things that maybe we can unpick or look into in more depth in the discussion. Over the years, the field of mental health and of children as areas of concern have become overtly politicised. They've become powerful cultural means, certainly sort of mental health, a powerful cultural means with which we make sense of our experiences. And it's very often the way that individuals and groups make political, social or economic demands today. It's often, I think, become Dominant because it's a universalizing discourse in an age of identity politics, echo chambers, and tribalism. This was brought home to me today, actually, when I logged on at work and on my university's website, they're promoting World Mental Health Day and they have a banner saying University Mental Health Day, bringing our community together. It's something we can all relate to. It's used as a means of forging bonds in the absence of any other major forms of of social cohesion. We can all be united in our vulnerability and our quest for good mental health. This emphasizing of vulnerability, showing your scars, whether physical or psychological, has become popular in the adult world as well. Think about trade unions and work stress, where we've gone from collective industrial action, for example, by going on strike, to industrial inaction by going off sick and i think in this respect we shouldn't be surprised that teacher teaching unions are at the forefront of emphasizing the threats facing children teachers students and academics physical and mental health concerns are more likely to gain public and political sympathy than ones around pay and working conditions alone and i, I think it's also interesting that those campaigning against lockdown have often argued on the basis of of mental health as opposed to maybe argues around rights and and liberty so key points just to finish i think probably is a rise in mental health problems uh, but not as significant as often as portrayed so i think we need to be careful there and also be clear that being miserable from time to time is not a mental disorder I also think that ultimately, lockdown restrictions, whatever your view on them are, is a political issue. So framing them in psychological terms is a mistake. And to bring it back to children and individual children, in my opinion, children are far more resilient than we often give them credit for. However, we also need to acknowledge, acknowledge that they're not invincible. So we do need to look out for them and offer help and support as appropriate, and that's whether that is within the family, the school, the peer group, or for a small percentage of cases, professional help.
0: Okay, Ken, thank you very much for that. Um, uh, Fantastic uh, range of introductions, and uh, it's really got got me thinking. I'm I'm just going to ask a couple of questions very quickly of the panel, and um, if they feel that they've got a quick response to that, then then please chip in, um, or or we'll just go out to the audience. I mean, I was very taken with what Molly said about the need for honesty and, and calling it as it is. Um, but I have to say, in all of my 20-plus years teaching, I've never felt more acutely responsible um, for the, uh, if you like, the, the hidden curriculum, you know, the informal messages that I'm conveying to my students through the manner in which I'm talking to them about the current situation. And I suppose my question to the panel is How, how do we how do we avoid – Uh, an honest discussion becoming a prophecy, a a self-fulfilling prophecy that we convey our own sense of anxiety and concern to students and and reinforce what they're already feeling. Um, Because I I, I guess, I I hope this doesn't sound glib, but the the best tonic is getting on with life, right, and achieving stuff. Um, So I'm just uh, just wondering if anyone on the panel would like to come back on that, how we avoid... uh, the, the, the problem of the self-fulfilling prophecy of, of framing it as crisis, uh, when we could well just um, get on with things?
1: Um, I guess okay. I can jump in uh, quickly.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, thanks, <coughs> thank you, um, you know, I I sort of never take the stance that I'm there to sort of express how I'm responding to a situation, but this has been unique, you know, and that there's a lot of things I don't have the answers for. And so I think um, I really, uh, you know, connect with what Ken said about, you know, being able to tolerate uncertainty. And so something I've spoken a lot to students about is learning to tolerate that we can't know and to, you know, maybe try to focus a bit more on the things we do know or the things we can control. So I really avoid looking to the future, speculating, you know, I i, I really uh, discourage my staff and team saying things like everything will be okay. Like I just, I don't think that's my suggestion. You know, I don't think that works. But I think just acknowledging where we are all at and trying to focus on, you know, what we can do now um, and be sure about today.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank, thanks for that. Um, did either of the other panelists want to come back on that? I've- yeah, I mean, I'm I'm
3: not a teacher, um, but I would imagine what you can't do is when they all come back, pretend that nothing has happened. You well, know, there's going to be half the discussions about it, and half people ha- ha- how people have got on and how they've coped and how they have found it. Um, you'll obviously there'll be bits of catching up to do with um, lessons as as well, but I, th- I think after that. A good teacher will know their own pupils, and it is a case of watching for those who may be struggling. You know, it's it's there. There's nothing uh, really. Psychiatric expertise isn't as good as it's often portrayed. The, the general public us are very good at spotting when people are are struggling, and I think a good teacher should be able to do that with their pupils. Um, but for for the majority of the time, hopefully get back to normal as soon as possible.
0: Okay. Um, I've just got Can one... I... Yeah, go, go on, Molly. Yeah, Can
2: please. I just add a just quick observation? I think there's a bit of an elephant in the room here because I think... And again, Ken, I think you made a really good point earlier about the, the distinction between the political and the psychological world. My kind of issue with that is I think our government have done a wonderful job of blurring the two. In fact, they, they have... Mm weaponized the psychology of fear and I think that when we talk about um the need to kind of you know show children another way and get them back to school normally I mean it we're ignoring the fact that that campaign of fear and the propaganda is still very much ongoing we're ignoring the fact that children are going to be in classrooms you know, in masks, being tested, and that actually, for some children, school is going to look like a very unfamiliar place. And, and I hate to say this, but in, in some schools, for some children, perhaps not a particularly friendly environment. And I, I think, again, like we need to be realistic about where we're at now. And, I, and we're all desperate, I'm sure, to move on to catch up and recovery and aspirational stuff. But in the here and now, we, we still have very real issues mm to grapple with would be my observation
0: okay thanks for that um i have got other questions i'm gonna not ask any more questions but just throw it out to the floor i mean two two things um that have been bugging me in the reading and i'm trying to get to the bottom of it uh some of you might have read the uh british uh bmj uh article on um lockdown and and schooling and it i mean it is a fantastically forceful case for um keeping schools open and uh uh, alerts us to the uh, many consequences for young people um, of uh, uh, the, the, the lockdown, but there was a, a phrase in there which uh, I just wondered if we, you know, we need to try and get to something better than this. The pandemic has seen an unprecedented intergenerational transfer of harm and costs from the elderly, uh, socio socioeconomically privileged people, to disadvantaged children, and, and I mean, at one level, that seems obviously true. But it, it's, um, it poses it as an intergenerational seesaw. So I'm wondering how we, you know, uh, pull together as a society on this one in order to move forward. So if people can help me with that, that'd be great. And, th- and the other thing is, um, as as schools opening up, colleges opening up has become a you know, realistic prospect next week to some extent, uh, I'm just interested in the issue of whether we need a hard or soft boundary between lockdown and non-lockdown, because it seems that we're kind of tapering it and prolonging it. And, I, you know, part of me thinks maybe we should just, uh, you know, I would like schools open, but maybe we should wait until we can open them in full without the masks and the restrictions and all of those things. Um, but uh, OK, so we've got lots and lots of people want to speak, which is uh, uh, fine uh, and uh, look forward to that. So uh, I've got uh, Simon's been uh, had his hand up from the beginning. So, Simon.
4: Um, good evening everybody it's a great discussion nice to hear from the three speakers who are obviously um, very varied in what they have to say um, obviously lockdown has other negative impact on children's um, health and it'd be flippant not to say that it hadn't but there has been a massive impact on everybody's mental health because of lockdown but are we not um, you know, s- um, skirting over the issue that was an actual public health issue a global pandemic and the alternatives i mean i read the the british medical journal article that toby was um, referencing and it said that children um largely are not going to be um uh, fatally um ill from the from the virus however they can act as incubators or hosts which could then transfer to people such as older people so nan and granddad and we saw in in the autumn from September to December, the, over 35% of cases were being caused by transmissions from school children. it was in The Guardian, and less than 5% from cafes, restaurants, you know, pubs and hospitality. And they are literally um, on the floor, aren't they now? They, they will not be able to recover. There's lots of people within those sectors who are very low income. Going back to Toby's point about um, there's been a massive economic shift. I mean, I would be um, eager to hear what Toby's suggestion would be in terms of how to, you know, benefit people from poorer income families so would it be a northern powerhouse that boris alluded to last year before the before the pandemic and before the 2019 december election but what i think we can do is children's mental health has been affected is it a transient issue children like sponges particularly young children so a lot of mindsets get fixed before the age of seven so will that damage be irreversible for them um, and can we learn anything from a global response to this in other countries, such as the Scandinavian countries, which locked down sooner, had better tests and trace and have had schools open um, for a significantly longer time than us? Obviously, they're less densely populated. But um, was the public health issue enough not to close schools in this country? Could we have learned from our neighbours? I'd be eager to throw that out to the floor. Okay. And yeah. also to, yep, yep.
0: Th- thank you, Simon. Simon that's great. Uh, so the public health reality there. Josephine. Josephine Hussey, did you want to?
5: Um, hi there, yeah. Um I'm a teacher in a primary school, so I teach year a mixed class of year five, six children, and I am really excited because I cannot wait to see my children. I've been watching them on Zoom um, for the last um the whole of this half term, and it's horrible. Um but the one thing that I would say is I think the experience in primary school has been very different to the experience in secondary school. And that's something that we need to think about. Um, in primary school, they've had live lessons where they have been able to engage with their children. I've I've had a lesson of my children every day, um, a maths lesson with my children every day. And I've connected with what they're doing throughout that day and talked to them about it. We've had... Um, a music lesson on live aka hamilton which was brilliant and today they were showing off their bridges that they made in dt so we still i feel have a sense of a class but despite that i've had children who've had moments and i've been a counsellor throughout the whole period Um, and i think part of the problem is that um, there are no boundaries anymore um, as adults in society, as Molly said, I think they've been let down greatly. I think they've been let down by the teaching profession focusing on safety and not focusing on children and their education. I, th- I was really interested in what um, uh, um, uh, Sarah was it Sarah Standish? Sorry if yeah, I've got your Sarah. Name yeah. Um, said about the year sevens because I dealt with the year sixes last year who got locked down. And I've got year fives from last year who are now year sixes who've had two terms of being locked down. They lost their sats. They lost that moment in their life when they start to mature. Year six is a time where the first time ever in their lives that they take responsibility for their own education. So in from my point of view, um, it's those structures and those boundaries that are provided by adults that I think that, that we've let children down on. And it's not parents fault. Parents are trying to find answers and reasons um, to help their children. And they're encouraged by a medicalization of these problems and a, a mental health um, explosion. And so they look to those areas for the answers for their children. For me, um, the, the biggest problems that I'm worried about are the children's inab- uh, inability to concentrate for a long time because they've not had that push from teachers to do that their writing goes backwards um at, the, at a younger level at the age of four, um, we would say that play is children's work but it's always structured by adults. And for me I really want to get children to start to come back to school and engage in learning because I think that is what is going to help their mental health. Um, and um, it's those strap those boundaries and structures that adults should be providing. Um, that I think is important, and that the children are, um, they've been segregated socially, and we are social animals. We need that. And the, the discussion about children's thinking and them coming together to develop ideas um, is all really important. And they've lost those boundaries between home and school. They've lost their private life. They've, they've lost their ability to say to their parents, I don't know what happened at school. But they've also lost their ability to go to school and be something else that they're not at home. And so it's those boundaries and structures that for me are important as we go forward
0: okay thank you joe um alan uh did you have a comment or question alan chapman no uh okay uh joanna sorry Um, alan
6: uh sorry just just very quickly because i might have to go here i i have a deeper perspective of this Although we have to be very, very careful with language, uh, because language um, means different things to different people. So when I say I have a deeper perspective, that's everybody has an extraordinary, extraordinarily deep perspective. Um, my perspective is deep lived experience in suicide, but I I make that as upbeat and and bizarrely. Uh, as fun as i can in the adult world i think there's an argument for doing that in the in the children's world as well as well because the point's already been made that we can we can frighten children that would not otherwise be frightened and and what we project outwardly has a huge effect on on forces that we don't really understand but you can easily imagine them in a practical sense about the reputations that that people start to build about themselves and um, you know whether they like it or not as either resilient or weak and there's a lot of wrong labeling i think labeling is i think is is ridiculous anyway but it's it enables things to be monetized in short um but i i believe that the many of the most sensitive children and adults um are the strongest and and they're very sensitive to what's going on not just in the UK but around the world we are to my mind in an evolutionary transition and I know this is ostensibly a, de- a debate about uh, education but education is connected with everything else and and the most sensitive children are the ones that are the most vulnerable to uh, the effects incidentally suicides in children won't manifest yet though they don't manifest I- I- I straight away in in adults never mind children they manifest in self-harming in children you'll know know how rampant that was before covid um how self-harm particularly in in young girls was was rampant and increasing okay. and that is a gateway to suicide so Thanks. you won't see an increase in child suicides for years. Okay. Uh, my, my, my final point yep. listening, is to direct everybody, please explore Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration because okay. it is the greatest and little and hardly known, because it's Polish in origin, hardly known explanation for this uh, misunderstanding of what is strength and what is weakness.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Alan.
6: Okay, Cheers.
0: thank you. Uh, Joanna, did you, uh, Joanna Williams, did you want to say something or make a comment before I bring the speakers? I will get everybody in.
7: Yeah, thanks, Toby. Um, I think the reminder that Ken gave us about the context prior to the pandemic, where uh, there was a great deal of discussion about a mental health crisis in children, and uh, children were considered to be just just generally vulnerable, I think is a really useful uh, reminder to us. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person who struggles to remember what life was like, kind of going back beyond a year. Uh, So it's very useful to have that. But I think if I do kind of try and cast my mind back a year exactly, given that context, given the way children were seen as being these kind of quite fragile, quite precious, quite vulnerable um, creatures. I think one thing that really surprised me was the complete pulling of of the rug from all the support networks and all Mm. the structures that were in place to um, support childhood more broadly. So obviously schools is the most important example, um, but even things like playgrounds being closed. I mean, I'm sure everyone saw those pictures of the uh, kind of padlocks and chains around the swings and slides uh, where playing out was prohibited. I mean, even just in the past couple of weeks, we've had stories of policemen uh, kind of taking children home for making snowmen in the street and having snowball fights. Um, particularly lots of discussion around the mental health of of university students. But then you look at some of the conditions in which they were treated when they arrived on campus, being kind of locked in their rooms, police patrolling outside, uh, being made to eat in isolation, sitting at a table on their own. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it just seems like we've lost all humanity in relation to how to deal with young people and with children, the kind of human instinct where you would want to let children play in a playground or play with each other in the street just seemed to to disappear. Nothing seemed to be off limits. Uh, Everything was sacrificed to this idea of, of controlling the pandemic. And it just seems like if we really believed what was being said before this about children being vulnerable and at risk, You know, it seems very contradictory with how society then reacted um, over the course of this past year. And and given what has happened, then clearly there is a normal range of human emotions that it's quite reasonable, I think, for children to uh, express in relation to the way they've been treated, angry, sad, fed up, disappointed, lonely, miserable, etc., but it seems as if it's sometimes trivial to be able to say those words, as if those words won't be taken seriously, as if the adult framework that's been created around them only permits mental health crisis. Uh, it's the only way, If you, unless you use that vocabulary, you're just not going to be taken seriously. Um, just wanting to play, being angry that you can't go out and see your friends is seen as trivial um, in the context of everything else that's going on. Um, so what what kind of disturbs me and worries me going forward then is the kind of cures, if you like, that are being proposed for these normal human emotions that children are experiencing. I'm thinking of things like mindfulness, meditation, all of these things that that schools are now looking to put in place and how that medicalizes um, and, and i guess my concern is that it placates so these children i think have got every right to be bloody angry at how they've been treated you give them coloring to do to kind of promote mindfulness what you're saying is you're placating their anger you're saying they're there never mind shut up be quiet don't express your anger your frustration your your sorrow even of what's happened um but my concern is that in a way anything we try and do now other than just returning children to normality could could have that effect and actually you know we can talk about catch up and we can talk about programs being put in place but i actually think going forward the number one thing we really need to be able to do is actually leave children alone okay. um, just kind of open the front door and let them out on the street and let them play
0: good okay uh, that's a great uh, opportunity to uh, bring back our speakers i mean that is a it is a fascinating issue, isn't it? The that uh, Joanna's point about the pulling of the rug—how um, we went from uh, society that seemed to talk about nothing else other than children and education to to um, that all just being uh, cast aside—and you know it would be useful if people had a, a response also to Simon's point. You know that, that there was a, uh, a, a you know the virus is real; it's taken many lives. Um, if, if not closing of the schools, then what? Um, so uh, would the panel like to come back at that point? Don't feel that you have to respond to all those, but just any points you think are useful.
2: I mean, could I start on the children yeah. being cast aside thing? Yeah,
0: yeah, please do. Of,
2: because I mean, I guess just, I mean, that's why us for them formed. It was pretty clear from us from, I and mean, this was a year ago, that just, just as a parent, you know, we were looking at... Um, I'm just trying to think what stage it was. This would this would have been around the time of the original school closures, people talking about how we're, how we're going to get kids back to school um, and just looking at the kind of interventions that were going to be used you know, and it just it, kids sitting in two metre squares in playgrounds, very little kids. And it, that was exactly what we felt. You know, who is thinking about the kids here? No one. And I think every single... <laughs> thing we have done since then um, reiterates that from a policy level, obviously very different when you're talking about school leaders and schools and individuals. But I think from a government policy perspective, um, I have just been amazed about what I've learned in the last year about how little children are thought of in in policy actually and how inadequate to, uh, I mean I'm a layperson really, but how inadequate looking at our government policymaking structures, um, they have been. So I think it's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, I think some of these things have always been there. But I think, as I said at the start, it, it, it one hopes we now have a chance to actually be really ambitious, not only in terms of the catch-up needed, but actually in terms of, of the structural things that we might be able to fix.
0: Molly, could I just push you on that a little bit, though? But how would you explain it? Because it, it seems that we've gone from... Um, in words, prioritising one group to prioritising another group, how is it that we could flip from one to uh, another? And I, I suppose what I feel is lost in there is what's the societal need, if that makes sense? What's the collective? So why is it we've gone from or, or I mean, is it fair? But how would you explain it? That's the- well,
2: yeah. I've got, I mean, I'm not sure it is right that we were ever a society that places children front and centre I, I don't I don't think that's true if you compare okay. us to countries like Sweden Finland it, 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 it either structurally or just um, outcome wise but that's probably beyond the scope of this discussion but so I'm not I don't I don't I wouldn't agree with that premise I think okay um hang you made a really interesting point that I've now forgotten what was your second point um how oh well I think yeah sorry why let's just say it was true though and that we have flip flop why is that well isn't it? And this is really uncomfortable, but isn't it that for the first time, really, maybe ever, or in certainly in my memory, the um welfare of the young has been almost directly pitted against the welfare of of the not young. And I think that's led to, you know, we have seen a deprioritization, I think, of children relative to adults. And I don't think children have been pitted against adults in this way before.
0: Ken, do do you mind if I point the shotgun at you at this moment? I mean, is is that correct? Is it, um, it's kind of understood and the BMJ thing I thought was a fantastic article, but it it really did get me thinking, uh, is it right that it's old versus young in this one? I mean, or is that the problem? I'm not, I'm not saying Molly's saying that, but that seems to be uh, a growing understanding um, of how the issue has been Framed Is that correct? Is that what happened? Uh, I remember very early early on in the pandemic thinking, well, they're just protecting retired people when houses are on their own um, and thinking, God, that is amazingly cynical that the Conservatives would prioritise that group against everybody else in society. And I stopped myself thinking, well, it can't be that dark. Um, what's your thoughts? Um, I think some of the intergenerational intergener-
3: thing is certainly the way it's been framed um, but I don't actually think it's been helpful at all. I think part of it was probably just certainly in the early days down to total incompetence. Um, you know, so trying to protect older people and people in care homes, uh, free up the NHS. We ended up sending people with COVID into care homes and sort of creating that sort of crisis. So I, I, I think for me, part of the problem It's not so much an intergenerational crisis. It's, for me, the way, not just related to COVID, that the the adult world or adults have used children in many respects and the language of mental health to make political demands, whether it's because they mean well and they're just naive or whether it's cowardice. But think about even wider issues. if you're concerned about poverty in society, you've got a better hearing if you talk about child poverty. People that are concerned about immigration detention, they're, like, they're campaigning around end childhood detention. I'm sure it's not so good for adults either, but they know that they can or be unlikely to win the argument that way. So in a sense, children have become politicised. So I think COVID has come, it's arrived into a situation that has already been there for probably 10, 20 years, 20 years now. Um, And in terms of the the childhood vulnerability, I I agreed with a lot of what what people said here and the way children were portrayed this week. What I would love to do uh, is to look at how those children or students have coped, the ones like for in Manchester who organised a rent strike nationally, uh, the ones who... um, Tore down the barriers that security, 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 security had put up to stop people visiting, to stop them having parties. You know, so that sort of fighting against it rather than being a passive victim might have been better for people's sort of well-being than part of the problem. I think for young people today is we've all they've all been sat at home as like most of us, almost like being passive subjects of history as opposed to striving for change. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to see how those ones that did actively challenge it have coped compared to to other people.
0: Yeah, at this stage, I don't want to grass up any young people I know, but I think there's also been quite a lot of determined, uh, quite quiet fun going on as well. Um, uh, okay, I'll go, I'll go back out to the floor again. Um, Kerry, did uh, Kerry Dingle, did you have a, a point or comment? Uh, you're muted, yeah.
8: Yes. Uh, sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, thank you to all the speakers. That was really illuminating. And I really um, agree with a lot of Ken and Joanna's points too. My concern is the way, in fact, even our speakers are doing it, and I'm not knocking you for it, but now talking about I'm worried about my mental health, I'm worried about you know what's happening to our mental health, now trips off everyone's tongue. And it is a very bizarre idea. You know, it's not, oh, I fell down or I cut my finger. I'm worried about my mental health. There's over 1,000 10 to 17-year-olds currently incarcerated in Britain for probably doing heinous things, no doubt. But there's no evidence that there is 1,000 mentally ill young people incarcerated. Now, I'm not arguing that lockdown hasn't exacerbated pre-existing Uh, mental illness, young people with mental health problems. And it certainly has undoubtedly damaged their intellectual development, their sociability, created all sorts of behavioural problems and nightmares. And as Joanna said, made people really pissed off, unhappy and angry like the rest of us. And I, I see no justification for lockdown because there is an alternative and that's trusting ourselves to make decisions that keep people safe, which we're all more than capable of. And interestingly... I've just done a survey with uh, several hundred young people have responded for a film I'm doing about young people in lockdown. And 67% so far said they have all broken the rules on the basis that they believed it was what they were doing was safe to do and not putting anyone at harm. And I think that's true of all of us. But unfortunately, we've gone the way of allowing the state to dictate anything And I do think Ken's point about there being a pre-existing problem is very pertinent here. I would see it as victim culture. And and victim culture, it's not that there's been a flip-flop where we care about children and victims and the vulnerable. And then we are totally inhumane, which we have been, as Joanna uh, explained and, and demonstrated. But that rather the very idea of victim culture was dehumanizing in the first place. It disrespected human beings, their abilities, what they're capable of. And really what we've had is a magnification of that underestimation of our capacity to be responsible, to do all sorts of things, to keep people safe, to look after each other. And now what we've got, and I think Ken rightly pinpoints this, is children and mental health, all our mental health, is a cop-out way of arguing for more freedom because people haven't got the balls to say this was wrong, disastrous, and to argue for the liberty and freedom that allows young people and all of us uh, to develop and run our own lives.
0: Excellent, thank you very much, Kerry. Um, Mish, did you um, have a, a
9: comment yes,
1: or a question? Thank you.
0: Yeah.
9: Um, my name is Michelle. I'm a uh, specialist practitioner in health visiting, school nursing. Um, I'm currently studying a master's in ethics and healthcare law. And one of the things that um, really bothers me is this. There's just no ethics being considered when things are being rolled out. So I don't know at what point we stopped um, doing impact assessments before we rolled out initiatives or restrictions or measures. But it just seems that more and more, we're, we're asking children to do various things like wear masks, um, test themselves, all, all the rest of it, without any impact assessment for the negative consequences of that. Um, and we talk about the precautionary principle and everyone's saying we've got to err on the side of caution with the virus, err on the side of caution, but the same... Um, principle is not being applied to restrictions and to measures and we talk about safety and Simon talked earlier about safety coming first and yes uh, you know it is important there is a virus out there but I think perspective has just been lost Um, when we when we ask people you know how many people know somebody who's died of COVID etc there's very few people who actually know someone now it's getting to the point now where somebody said to me how many people do you know who are struggling with their mental health well, my daughter's at university. She sadly lost someone about three weeks ago who, who killed himself. Um, in the hospital, we've lost a member of staff, and another colleague has lost a cousin who was schizophrenic and had reduced services. So that's three people that I know of personally who with to do with suicide. That's not even to mention other mental health um, you know, implications. So it's getting to the point now where when we look at the harms from the pandemic, for me it's just, um, you know, overwhelmingly more harmful when we see the impact of the restrictions and everything else that's happening than the virus itself. And I just feel that for children in particular, you know, we're having these conversations about, you know, the damage and 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 the scale of that. But also, how do we start to now give parents the tools to rebuild that and to repair that damage? I think that's the next conversation is how do we repair it? And how do we give them the resilience to overcome this? Um, thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. I mean I think in the in the last bit of the discussion we definitely want to get to the kind of practical how do we rebuild from here but um uh, uh Jenny did you have a a point or a question you wanted to make there? Um
10: yes, uh, perhaps just three very short points. Um the first one is following on from um Ken's points about the uh, longevity of this this issue and the fact that children's mental health and um, mental health services has been going on for, I would say, at least 25 years. In my experience as a community paediatrician, I can't remember ever having not had to fight for decent provision of, of psychiatric and psychological services for children. Um, and remember that that covered not only children who have very significant mental health disorders, it covered children who had um, developmental disorders as well, such as the behavioral problems with autism and so forth. And those services have been consistently underfunded, underprovided, but even worse They've been overwhelmed. They've been overwhelmed because the expansion in the definition of mental health disorders has been vast over that 25 years. You've you've got doubling, tripling, a hundredfold more diagnoses of mental health disorders over that period. Similarly, I'm sure all the teachers will vouch for the fact particularly in primary schools they, right from the from the 90s onwards there's been increasing emphasis on uh, children's mental health. So you've had you know things like mindfulness developed, you've had circle times, you've had all sorts of things which have amplified these so-called problems and completely overwhelmed, Um, At children's mental health services and this has had a devastating impact on those children who need it most and what's worse is that's going to be a continuing problem and so I really took the you know the points um, that Sarah made about the exacerbation of of problems for children who have a real mental health problem that is very significant Um, and and perhaps that's that's where I think it is very, very important for teachers to be aware of that. But, but that's a very, very different problem from the vast majority of children. And I, I completely agree um, with with the Joanne and Josephine that the last thing the children need is more mindfulness um, things, you know, more things designed at therapeutic um handling of 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 their situation. What they need, as Josephine, I think, very eloquently put, um and 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 Joanne put to, is structure, is a return to normal education, as well as the encouragement of extracurricular activities, play, and all the other things which will allow children to grow. I think that was my second point. The the last point I, I, I would make is that um, children are resilient, whatever people say. I know they've suffered, but you think of children who've come through major disasters, in fact, our parents and so forth, who came through the Second World War and so forth, they were not irreparably damaged by that experience. For the main, the vast majority of people can. What is required is precisely, you know, what what what. The what teachers um, that tonight have emphasised is that they returned as quickly as possible to a normal environment. And just to conclude, I think the medical and scientific community have got a real cheek coming in with this sort of, you know, wringing their hands about children's mental health. What were they doing when it was very clear that children were not a risk to others, not significant risk to others, that most young children would not get infected. Where were they then saying, look, it's ridiculous keeping children out of school. It's ridiculous keeping them socially isolated. Let's let all the children go back and deal with the consequences and safeguard other people who who, who need to be safeguarded.
0: Okay, thank Ended you. Ended there. OK, thank you, Jenny. Um, so I, I will uh, try and get everybody in um, before, before we end. But I think we're, we're moving to the question now of uh, recovery, you know, how, how, how we move forward and what things we should be doing. But I would just ask um, if, if the panel would like to, I think we're sharpening the point. We, we, we seem to be agreeing that there will be a serious exacerbation of problems with, for uh, students um, with, uh, and pupils with um, serious con- existing conditions, and and that's an urgent thing that needs to be dealt with, um and uh, uh, addressed, but not necessarily a generalised problem for the for for young people as a as a complete co- cohort. Um, but but Kerry uh, made a very kind of pointed um uh a uh, uh, criticism. Are it, are we copping out on freedom by framing this in terms of um, mental health? Uh, is uh um. You know, young people do need structures, but they need freedom as well, don't they? They need autonomy. Um, And uh, are are we just being too apologetic on that point? Um, uh, I mean, I often talk to my students and say the extraordinary sacrifice they've made on behalf of um, society during this period in terms of the curtailment um, of of their freedom. Uh, Is there a danger here that we are just, you know, what they need is freedom, you know, independence, the capacity to... Uh, make decisions for themselves, and that's what we should be um, arguing for. Just wonder if the panel would like to come back on on any of that, on any of that, or other points.
3: I'll come in. I'll come in. i think certainly in, in terms of um some fantastic or tragic um, historical examples, though, of of society realising the importance of of getting things back to children uh, to normal for children. Take the Aberfan disaster in Wales when a cold tip um, slipped and golfed to school, I think there was about 116 children and 20 odd um, teachers died. Decision was made to get the kids to school after two weeks. And they sort of getting back to a sense of normality would help them recover from that terrible trauma that the, the whole village had gone through. So, that sense of normality is, is great. I think there's also lots of evidence that like disaster counselling, seeing them all as, as being damaged, mm-hmm. will make the matters worse. Simon Wesley, the former president of the Royal College of Psychiatry, and his research into it showed that people who had the sort of disaster counselling straight after a major incident, six months later, fared worse than those that hadn't. Uh, because it was it was an outside person stepping in and getting in the way of individuals and family and friends' natural coping coping strategies. I think we also need to take some responsibility in the adult world, though, because this way of portraying more and more political demands in psychological language originated with us, well, not, not with us personally, it originated in the adult world and permeated through uh, to, to childhood as, as well. Um, and we need to get away from this sort of language of challenging these groups and lots of advocacy groups. And that's where, um, I think Molly, you're right when you talk about the way the government portrays. There's also lots of campaigning groups now from the NSPCC, education, there's a whole host student minds, the NUS, they couch their political demands in mental health terms. And unless we challenge that, I don't think we can be surprised if other members of the public and also children don't pick up on that. Because as we go through life, if we try to give meaning to our experiences, we draw on the cultural resources around us. And if that is a dominant cultural resource which often it is at the moment we should not be surprised that children draw off that as well
0: okay thank you um sarah did you want to come in at uh, this point and any points or comments
1: yeah i mean we're, i feel like the conversation has gone in a lot of directions um so i'm just gonna bring it back to what, what i know for sure yeah um, sure. which is that um you know there is not enough provision full stop so whether we're talking about kids who are just kind of having a tough time right now and are going to be fine later or those kids that really have a more significant issue there isn't enough provision so i know we're all talking about like uh you know just getting back to normal and what if lockdown hadn't happened but again this bigger issue is um how can we unlock and open up support you know when it's needed and at the right level. So I agree with everybody out there saying things about, you know, we can't ask teachers to teach mindfulness. You know, we don't want to sort of like make the classroom therapeutic. Like I'm totally in agreement with that 100%. But also I don't believe everybody needs a school counselor. Okay. So in my experience, you know, of all of my students who, who have experienced really horrible bereavements during this time, you know, losing parents, um, losing multiple family members, I'd say none of them have really needed long-term, ongoing, complex counseling support. Um, you know, so I think, I think what I'm suggesting, I think I honestly believe every school should have a counselor. You know, I do believe that's a good thing to have. But I think there's something between asking teachers and other educational staff to become kind of counseling therapists I think there has to be something in between there, Um, you know, so that students know that there's somewhere to go that isn't in the classroom, um, that they can seek some support. The other thing I'm going to say to you, which, again, you may not agree with, but in my experience, children just knowing who they can go to is sometimes enough. You know, a lot of kids don't want to talk to us adults. Let's be honest. okay? they're going to their friends. OK, they're talking to their peers and making sense of this. They're going on to social media. No one's talked about social media yet. OK, that's how they're trying to figure this out. But, you know, just knowing someone's there if and when they need it is sometimes all they need. So I'm not trying to make it like a simple, small, you know, quick fix. But I just we don't I don't think it needs to be complicated.
0: OK, thank you. Molly, did you want to, to, to come back on that point about, you know, should we just. Do we need to be just making the case for the rights and freedoms of of young people in an unapologetic way? Does there need to be more emphasis on that in, in the current moving forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that does. I think the only thing maybe I would add to that is that um as we've seen in the adult context, just because people have rights doesn't mean those rights are inviable. Um True. I think I think it would be a start to have the right so and i think there must be a case now for incorporating the un crc into english law they're doing that in scotland Um, and once again actually our government looks you know behind what the scottish government does it's it's noticeable actually that in scotland um kids were exempt from uh, many of the social restrictions whereas they weren't here and i didn't know that yeah, and that and they're still not. So restrictions on social distancing, the rule of I forget whatever it is, two, four, six, twelve, whatever we're on, um, children by and large in Scotland were exempted and by and large weren't here. Um so yes, I think there is um definitely a need for that. I would go further than that. I'd see I would say there's a need to give them rights. I would say there is a need to put them in a very meaningful way at the heart of policy making, and there's different models you could look um, to do that, you could look at having uh, people have talked recently about having a, a cabinet minister responsible for children, cabinet, you know, cabinet, um, that level of seniority. You could also do, I believe it is Finland, where they effectively child proof um, all legislation in the same way that you might, European um, Human Rights Committee have the same for. The children
0: I think you're cutting out a little I bit Molly that. Molly we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you because I think you're cutting out a little bit there okay I'm going to try and get everybody in um, uh, before um, I ask our speakers uh, to come back on how how we move forward in terms of recovery so so what, what is it that we should be um, doing um, as adults uh, to try and support the recovery? Uh, And and the return to uh, normality. Um, uh, I mean, I I note that um, the recovery czar has talked about the deep scars and problems in the system, which kind of makes me feel like some people feel that we're defeated before we've even started um, to kind of try and put things back. And um, uh, I'd like to think at least least something I do in education works. Um, But uh, um, uh, so, um, Nancy, did you did you have any? Points or comments that you wanted to make at this stage?
11: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time over the, over the last few months reading about plagues of locusts and blizzards and things that have happened to kids in the past. And the more I read about it, um, the more I think that the problem is a cultural one. Uh, it's not a policy problem. It's it's we need to repose it as a cultural one because I think. The difference between now and the past is that kids had access to the cultural resources to help them to find a way to hope um, and to look forward and to feel that they're going to get through it. Um, and my fear, which goes along with things that other people have said, is that instead of um, instead of um, allowing kids to work through this stuff through the uh, for themselves, instead of offering them some other alternative, um, or even a discussion of the future, we seem to have all of this horrible m- growth mindset crap, um, um, mindfulness booklets, and, and you know, and, and self care and counseling, which is fine for people, you know, for kids who, you know, have serious uh, issues and need that kind of thing. But you can't, it, it, it seems to me a real problem to want to apply this to everyone. And so I guess my my thing is just I think we just need to to repose the discussion and make it about a way of life.
0: Okay, lovely. Um, uh, resources for growth and uh, hope, I think, is an interesting one. Um, Sally? Sally and gray uh, I think you're on mute at the moment. Yeah, there I'm we go.
12: Un- I've unmuted myself. Yeah, I've just got two little stories. Um, which are relevant? Um, basically, when I was a child and I went to my primary school in the middle of the country, if my primary school a bomber dropped on it, it would have been the best day of my life. Happy, happy day, right? First of all, I had, I was, I could play anywhere I liked. I had loads of kids to play with. I had loads of books. What did I need school for? And quite honestly, I taught myself to read, and then I taught my sister to read. Anyway. Right, moving further on to my secondary school, my home life got terrible. I'm not going to go into why it was, but it did. And so my friendships at my secondary school were a lifeline. And when we were taken away, my family moved away because of the, you know, I mean, it was like being placed in exile, it was terrible. And so I, what I'm, the reason I'm bringing up these two examples, and I know they're personal examples, is because, in reference to Joanna Williams' point, this idea that kids need to be free, if they possibly can. It's more important, in my opinion, than education. I mean, you know, and maybe for lots of people I'm, you know, and I'm an educator. It's not that I'm not an educator. But I I do think it's it's the most vital thing, and so, and I and I don't like this over medicalisation and over, in my opinion, uh, over psychologising, if you like, of mental health. I mean, I'm teaching a further education college. We have kids. You've got a lot of them um, problems in the middle of London, uh, to do with mental health. So we can. Um, the counsellors are overworked. But loads of the kids, you can make appointments, they do not turn up. They are not interested. They get far more support within their friendship circles. Far more. And this is something I think is really important and is maybe and I'm gonna shut up. Okay, thank you. No, no,
0: I mean it's it's a it's a great and powerful idea, isn't it? Giving them the space to to form those bonds which have been denied to them. Um, and uh, and to become a cohort, you know, to to, to be together. I think it's a great um, idea. Ian, did you did you want to come in at that point? You're on mute at the moment, Ian. <laughs> Can you unmute yourself? Yes. Sir. Thank you. Um, okay.
13: Yeah, my my feeling on this is that um, I, I think the restrictions might prove worse for young people, people generally, compared with the lockdown. Um, uh, And it sort of fits in with what the last few speakers, uh, about five years ago now, um, I I was fortunate enough to um, uh, attend a a visit with my school um, to a synagogue uh, and heard a Holocaust survivor, do this talk, I mean, it was brilliant. And um, one of the things she said about her recovery was, I was sort of all ears, you know, how did you get over this? You know, um, and, and the answer was to help others, um, became a Samaritan and, um, you know, sort of reached out to others and, you know, and that helped her as well as helping other people. Um, and it, it just seems to me that in this recovery, um, the, the thing I think about mental illness is that whilst the problem might be, the problem might be intrinsic, the answer is very often extrinsic, either helping others or being creative. Um, and, of course, the restrictions are going to restrict that creativity or connecting with others or helping others. So, so what concerns me is that, I mean, it comes back to this idea of freedom. I mean, how, how, do you, how are you going to encourage young people to, to put this behind them and go out and do things which might either help them overcome mental illness or prevent them getting into mental illness when they're not just not allowed? So I, I think the restrictions are the problem. Um, schools offer so many things, trips, clubs, drama, sport. Um, and with that, those restrictions, how how do you help children recover? So the, I think the restrictions are the things that have got to go. The lockdown's done, what's done is done. It's, it's the restrictions are going to be the problem for me, I think.
0: Yeah, and we've got this kind of thing of the tapering, haven't we? And, you know, rather than it just ending, it's kind of continuing in a different form. Um, F- Feno, uh, did you have any Points or comments at that stage?
14: It probably follows on a little bit. I I was thinking, uh, in some ways, the way that the the title of the debate or the way it's posed socially around, you know, does uh, does lockdown impact children's mental health? In some ways, there's a simple answer to that, which is no, um, for the reasons that others have given. You know, there are plenty of historical examples where kids have had worse experiences and... um, uh, and have managed to, to get through that okay. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, obviously that would be a rather a glib answer. And it, it's it's maybe worth asking, you know, why does that question get asked now? Or why does that come up as an issue now? Um, and I think as a couple of the speakers said, preoccupation um, uh, with children's mental health has existed for a long time. But I think in some ways you could also say that lockdowns existed for a long time in the sense that, it's really just uh, an extension of already existing trends and in some ways you've got kind of two sort of two different sides of the same coin You know, sort of a preoccupation of uh, mental health in general, not just around children um, as the sort of the obverse of a devaluing of, of freedom. So very much kind of in keeping with what, what some other people have said. I think that you know, the problem of mental health particularly, I mean, it's something that's what I do for a living. It, 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 it's a dead end in terms of resolving a lot of the issues that um, that people bring into mental health services now. I really agree with some of the points that that, that that Jenny made. And actually where those things are going to get resolved for people is in, you know, in their sort of spontaneous, uh, their their friendships, the kind of, you know, political relationships that people make, campaigns that people start, you know, that's where those things are going to get resolved. Um, And I think that's very much like, um, uh, you know, the the point that the last person made, just, you know, trying to stand up for freedom and uh, looking after, particularly, I suppose, our freedom to get support from each other and not, not feel that we need to rely on um sort of state uh state support all the time that 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 feels really important and i don't know if it's exactly what sarah meant when she was talking about kids getting support from each other but that somehow feels um quite reckless you know that's how you're made to feel if you sometimes if, if if that's your solution you're working in in mental health you know allowing people to get on and do it themselves You're going to get asked questions if anything goes wrong. That's one of the things that comes up. And I think standing up for, you know, allowing people to grow and uh, work things out for themselves is is going to be an important part of coming through the other side of this. But it won't be just coming through lockdown. It will be coming through a much, you know, much longer pre-existing process.
0: Okay. Um, So we've got a couple more people. I'm I'm going to bring in, and then I'll I'll go to our speakers and just ask our speakers um, two or three things we can do to. To, to aid the recovery, uh, you know, what our priorities should be. Ollie, did you want to make a point there?
15: Um, no, it wasn't a point. It was more of a question. Okay, fine. Um, I would like to know if there are anything about the restrictions, COVID restrictions that affect children that we actually like or see benefit in. So, for example, I had a conversation with the guy who was on Spy M, which is one of the uh, boards that advises the government. And he, one of his points was that it is a good thing that we're all now obsessed with handwashing you know, never again are are any of us gents going to see a man not wash his hands after using the urinal in a public toilet now. We might argue that's a good thing, so that's one of the restrictions that actually we think is a good, is a positive um, outcome. And there was a teacher in America I was talking to, and she said that whilst she mourns the fact that school has now become another app on children's phones, actually, never again is a child who's got a bit of a cough going to be able to be absent from school because now she'll be able to say, we'll turn on your Zoom and stay in bed. So I am wondering whether there are anything there are anything about the restrictions in regard to children that actually we think are good or that we might like to continue or that we've learned from going forward.
0: Now, there's a challenge to throw at them in the last minute there. Uh, fantastic. Okay, um, uh, Harley, uh, last person.
16: Cheers. Um, yeah, Sally's uh, comment about blowing up schools just reminded me of Werner Herzog, the film director, who grew up ge- in Germany during the war and, and always says that, you know, bomb sites were the best playground. I'm not okay. sure we want to make that a policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, two quick observations. Uh, Sarah mentioned social media. Uh, our 16-year-old, um, he's fed up, you know, not getting enough fresh air or exercise getting a bit sullen but his savior has been social media because every night after dinner he trots upstairs and gets on computer games and discord and sits there shooting things up and playing chatting riotously with his friends for a few hours and the neighbors have to tell us to keep it down um, so you know he's actually had a really decent social life throughout this although it has to be said within a very specific bubble of his of his mates and i expect that's true for quite a lot of teenagers although you know we keep hearing about the destructive side of social media there's also the good side of it too but you know that's a 16 year old i keep thinking about the kids who are pre-social media age so you know we're trying to be specific here tonight you know it's it's affecting different groups in different ways, and if there was a thing on parent ping, the um, the uh, survey of parents earlier this week said one in three children haven't seen another child in over a month. So, uh, and then the other point was um, relating to what Kerry said about the mental health argument. Um, I, this afternoon, I looked up uh, on on Twitter. Did anyone disagree with the proposition? And uh, I found a few saying that well, you know, actually undoing lockdown will help harm children mental health because they think, you know, um, the the lockdown is sensible and and, and that, uh, you know, undoing it will cause uh, children to spread it to to their uh, parents, grandchildren and and deaths and so on. And those deaths will be much more significant long term in, in, in affecting their mental health um than the 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 lockdown itself so you know all i'm the point i'm making is that the mental health argument is is one that can cut both ways it's got you know I'm, i'm not i'm not convinced either that it's a good way to go
0: okay fantastic i'm going to stop it there before we go into the upsides of lockdown and start talking ourselves back into it um you bunch of sadists okay uh so fantastic discussion i found that really uh illuminating and um Useful. i'm going to bring our speakers back in in a second but um uh uh for their final comments and then we we can thank them for um a, a fascinating discussion um uh but can i just remind you if you would like to see more debates and discussions su- such as these please make a contribution um to the education forum harley's going to re- post that link and and do do email and um ask to join the um mailing list because we hope to put on well, we have been putting on many of these discussions for many years, um, but we'd like to keep you informed about this. And um, uh, there's uh, plenty of people I know in the audience, but lots of new faces as well, and that's fantastic that it's it's, it's gone more more broadly in here. Um, so, can I ask our um, speakers to come back in uh, the uh, reverse order? I'll start with uh, Ken. Um, a- any any thoughts about how we um, uh, make? effective the recovery make it as quick as and effective as possible
3: yeah well i admire ollie's optimism but i don't think um washing hands and uh, urinos in the after using the <laughs> urinos in pubs in glasgow will last very long post lockdown lifting ollie but well, you you never know um i think there's quite a lot i sort of agreed with with what people w- w- were saying um like with jenny's point one of my concerns for years um, over the expansion of of what's classified as a mental illness, or as a mental disorder, it's, a, it's very similar to Jenny's because I was working at the front line, and I could see how inadequate services were for people that really did need them. Yet at the same time, people who didn't require help were being told to sort of define themselves. Or articulate the problems through the language of, of mental illness, which I've seen is is unhelpful. I think we don't know what's going to happen when lockdowns lifted and what the effect on children will be. I don't think it it will be that bad. I couldn't agree more with. I, I, if we're going to have a counsellor in every school, I'd like it to be someone like like Sarah, who whose um, strategy to me seems fine. You'd be, be somebody just they can come to chat to, um, knowing there's a small percentage of them, small percentage that may require uh, further referral. It seems the way, uh, the, the right way to go. And for most of us, for parents, teachers, uh, and everyone else, just keep an eye on them, uh, let them sort of spread their wings again, and use our own judgment as to whether they need any further referral. And and finally, I think also we need to be clear though that some of these, the reason I started with the historical points about childhood mental health epidemics and, and, and the other thing is these won't go away once we lift lockdown. So we we must sort of be aware of that and start to challenge them in the future and not just think after lockdown we can forget about it.
0: Okay, thank you very much, uh, Ken. Molly, did you want? Did you have any tips for us moving forward?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, the all I'd say probably is actually just you know going back to where we started. Like, just I think the most important thing is to be honest about the scale of what we've done and be really aspirational about how we come out of this. So I don't actually I don't agree that we should be looking for a quick recovery plan. I don't think it's about how do we catch them up. You know, most quickly, what's the most efficient way here? I think what's actually the the kind of longest term, most sustainable thing we could do, and what have we learned about what children need? What didn't they have? Um, you know, before lockdown, I think as Ken said, I think it was Ken that you know the the problems with children' mental health. You know, we've been, we've been saying this for a long time before. So let's try and really go back and and put childhood really on, on a better footing. And what does that look like from a policy point of view, from a, from a rights point of view and um, in, in practice.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Molly. Um, Sarah, the final word. I can see Gareth, I'll I'll come to you in a second.
1: Okay. um, I'll try to be succinct. I guess, you know, I'm being slightly repetitive, but I really think those of you in schools need to talk to your head teachers and your senior leadership teams about, Um, you know, hiring a professional counselor. You know, one of the things that I provide to the staff is reassurance that this isn't a significant problem that we're seeing, you know, so in some ways I'm there to sort of say, yes, we need to refer this on, but otherwise we need to kind of wait and watch and do something different. So, Talk in your school communities. It's lots of schools don't have counselors, and they have other people who maybe don't have that expertise who are trying to make decisions. The second thing I would say, which I'm a real advocate of, is be willing to try something different—an intervention at your school, even not knowing if it's going to work. So, for example, um, our year 11s were quite concerned about, and we've taken the top. 20 out of 400 of our students who have seemingly been disengaged during this lockdown. And we now have a whole protocol and a whole program that we're going to be doing with them before Easter. Now, this is just a tiny little intervention. We don't know if it's going to work, but we feel good trying it. So that's 20 students. But if we can engage 10 of them again, then we feel like it's a win. So be willing to try things that may not work. And finally, um, you know, and I I promote this uh, when I do staff training, trust your instincts about your children that you're working with and your own students. You know when something feels very, very wrong, you know, and that a student really or a young person really seems changed. You know, those are the kids that need help okay so really trust your um, wisdom of your life experience of your professional career Um, you know that means so much it's a very meaningful tool Um, you know you don't need as someone else said you don't need to have a phd you don't need to know about the dsm or whatever if something feels really wrong there's probably something really wrong
0: yeah i mean i i kind of like the overall messages coming out let's go to work let's I mean, today I set up a book club at college, uh, and I was really surprised that the students are interested in it. We're doing The Raven in two weeks' time. We're going to discuss that poem. And, uh, you know, I think that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, one of the inadvertent consequences of lockdown is I've ended up in about 28 different book clubs. Um, So I've started reading literature again, and I'm excited to kind of convey some of that uh, to my students. So uh, I think that's kind of going to be the best form of recovery is getting on with what we know kind of best as teachers, which is engaging, teach, uh, engaging the next generation in culture. Gareth, uh, did you want to come in at that, that point?
17: Uh, yeah, that's really kind, Toby. Thanks for slotting me in at the end. And, and thanks, everybody, for, for coming this evening. It's been absolutely fantastic. And um, I'm one of the organisers of the forum, and we're really pleased to see so many people here. But I, I just wanted to re-emphasise that point that um, we could be worrying a lot about the mental health, but I think we should be worrying about the enormous positive drive amongst kids now to get back to school. Even the ones that, you know, Sally was referring to before that actually don't like school very much at all. Um, even they are desperate to get back into the swing of seeing their mates again and all of that. This could be and, I, and I've written really critical things about the lockdown. I'm, I'm not saying any of that was good, but this could be a really good opportunity to re-infuse kids about why school is special, why it's worth clinging on to, um, why actually even exams, you know, are useful things in terms of uh, being able to judge yourself fairly against other people. But most importantly, getting back into the classroom and thinking about new ways that we can do things, you know, following on from what uh, Toby's just said about book groups and and, and all sorts. There is, there's loads of ways of doing education in school. And now is the time all of us who are interested in education to get together and think about how we can take this phase in our lives in a positive direction, which is kind of a plug also for saying, please come back to the education forum, because it's where we try and think things out like this and and come up with, with new and creative ways of going forward. And just a very quick plug that if you haven't made a little donation to the uh, Academy of Ideas, maybe you could do that now, so that we can we can hold more of these things. But but thanks everybody, I've had a fantastic discussion tonight. Thank you everybody. Okay,
0: thank. You. And now um, can we um unmute everyone so we can thank our fantastic speakers?
7: Thank you very much. Thank
12: you.
7: Thank you. thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank
12: you for having me. Okay.